HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Happy Thanksgiving episode. Joining the studio today with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez and Piper from Booker and Dax Lab. How you guys doing? Good. Good. Yeah, we got Joe over in the uh, engineering booth. Joe, how you uh, how you doing? I'm doing well. What are you going to do for the Thanksgiving? Oh, I'm just going to go back to Baltimore, visit the family. Nice, quiet Thanksgiving. Yeah? Yeah, I'm excited, though. <laughs> you said That's your excited voice? I'm excited, though. Yeah, just yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Nice, nice. And uh, uh, Piper, you're doing what? What are you doing? You're going to go to Vermont? Vermont. Yeah? Yeah. I've heard that they have no internet and telephone in Vermont. Is that true? No. No yeah. paved roads either. No? No? No. no. you got to go to New Hampshire for paved roads? Oh. Wow. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, for those of you that uh, you know, haven't tuned in before, and Piper's on, uh, you know, they got a kind of a hate-hate uh, thing going on between uh, Vermont and uh, New Hampshire. What's the only thing that they can uh, agree on there? Maine. Yeah, and, and what about Maine? It's a dark wilderness. I actually like Maine quite a, quite a lot. I, I, I enjoy Maine. But uh, I don't come from up there, so I don't have to worry about it. Stas, uh, what are you going to do? Parents are here. Oh, wow. We'll just leave it at that. Parents are here. They rented a house where? Uh, near New Haven. And who's going to make the turkey? Mother. And how is your mom's turkey? I'm not going to talk about it every year. I'm not going to talk about it. It's great. What you, it's a lie. Everyone knows. Everyone knows that you. It's a little dry. Yes, <laughs> a little dry. That's my next band name. A little dry. Uh, call in your questions two seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. I am actually going to a uh, a potluck family Thanksgiving thing. So I have no idea what the food will be like at all. But I do know one thing. I am driving there. And driving home again from it, which means I will not be having any wine at Thanksgiving. That sucks. Yeah, that's the best part. What are you bringing as part of your potluck? I have no freaking idea. I have no idea. I've just been, like, like, people, I have, like, Thanksgiving, uh, as it should be for a food person, is one of my all-time favorite holidays. I love myself some Thanksgiving. uh, And this year I have not had any time to devote to it at, at all. But... 
what I do have is one of Patrick Martin's heritage birds that I'm going to cook as soon as I get home. So uh, hopefully maybe before next time I can talk about the, the home cook. I'm a big believer if you go to somebody else's house for Thanksgiving and you don't necessarily get the, the turkey you want, that's all about the fellowship. But you should still try to bust out one good turkey a year just as a proof of, you know, proof of skizzles. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, right? Uh, the three of us, we didn't talk about it, right? We didn't talk about the photo shoot we did at Food & Wine, did we? Mm-mm. Yeah, we did, we, uh, did, we, we did the little turkey with the, uh, with the gravy packet on the inside where we took the gravy packet, made the gravy packet uh, with gelatin, yeah, well, extra gelatin, duh, and then uh, and calcium, uh, cut it, it, set it, cut it into blocks, uh, threw it into alternate to put a heat-proof uh, like thin layer around it, and then did the very finely pounded uh, white meat turkey, uh, Right around the with meat glue, right around the uh, gravy packet. Then we did the dark meat turkey. Then we did the skin. We did the cook off. We then we dried off the skin. We hit it with the searsall, 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 searsall. And then we uh, oh this this is the fun part. Stas made uh, Parker House roll uh, dough, and uh, I made my mom's stuffing. And we packed the stuffing and we put the Parker House roll around it. And then we uh, cooked that stuff up. It tasted pretty good. I mean Piper couldn't tell because he's not allowed to, you know. Yeah, I could eat the crannies. Oh, Piper made crannies, which registered trademark, uh, patent pending. Not really, not really patent pending. Not really registered trademark either. But uh, that's it. Was simple. We just, stuff that stuff. Uh, that stuff was simple. You just mixed. Uh, the, we made the cranberry sauce, strained out the solids, and mixed it with uh, mayonnaise. Right? No. What? No. What did you do? I uh, I strained out the the solids from the cranberry sauce, and when when it was uh, not set but still a little bit warm, I put the yolk in there. Oh, you made it from you made scratch scratch. You didn't mix mayonnaise. You made it old school. Is it because I yelled at you that the guy that uh, Bao made it the chocolate mayonnaise back in the day and made you feel bad about it? Uh, I mean, you set that as sort of a precedent. Yeah. Now I thought Piper took the easy way out, but it turns out Piper uh, Piper did me proud and did not take the easy way out, and it was uh, delicious. It was yeah. good. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. I'm gonna do it for my family, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why don't you? Uh, can you fit the recipe into uh, Twitter? Can you get it that short? I, I, I did a whole thing for steak once in Twitter. So I was like, no. She's looking, no. Uh, you could do like two no, tweets. No, I bet Piper can't do it in one tweet. That's what I'm saying. Ooh. You, you don't think Piper can do it in one tweet? We, we're struggling with tweets right now. What if I just wrote it down and then took a photo of it? That's a weak tweet. That's weak tweet. Weak tweet. The I, whole point of the tweet is to try to get within the medium, which is the character. Well, no, he's going to try. He's going to look outside of it. It'll be on a splattered. But Piper, uh, Piper's going to send out this damn page. recipe one way or other. And in order to get it, I'm not going to put it on the cooking issues uh, tweeting uh, feed. You're going to have to go follow Booker and Dax Lab, uh, which is where the Searsall thing is uh, is going to be going up in two days. Well, two days in like five hours. Six, two days in like eight hours, whatever it is. Midnight. Midnight on so two days and 12 hours. Thursday, Friday. Thursday, Friday, Black Friday. So you want to talk about uh, what's going on with that? I mean, uh, if you're following us on Twitter, you already know that we've got a lot of uh, big names using the Sears All, loving the Sears All. Um, and we're going to launch it. The video's coming together. The page is coming together. It looks great. I'm yeah. excited. Yeah. You want to tell them about our, our, our sushi chef friend? Uh, Daisuke Nakazawa? Yeah. The famous four. Uh, he worked at Jiro. He was the guy who made the omelet. By the way, uh, Stas and I have eaten at Jiro. The omelet, the tamago there, is in fact different from any other one and delicious. Remember, it was kind of fluffy and like a, almost like a cake. Mm-hmm. Remember that thing? Mm-hmm. That was actually one of my favorite things about Jiro was the tamago. Delicious. Yeah. Yeah. And now the uh, the 
the developer, I guess, the master of my favorite Tamago, now uses the steer cell. Yeah. Loves. He's got a restaurant uh, somewhere in the West Village. Yeah, but here it's hard to get into, though, right? Yeah. Hard to find. It's on commerce. Oh, my God. They, look, look. People – see, here's the problem. Like, people are telling inside jokes on the radio. They were in a taxi cab with a famous chef who is known for having a bit of a temper, and the taxi driver was unable to find – uh, a Nakazawa sushi restaurant. And so uh, there was uh, hilarity ensued, right? Yeah. And by hilarity, I mean anger. And fear. But uh, he loves, uh, Nakazawa loves the, the Searzol. Uh, doesn't put any taste on the salmon skin that he crisps up with it. Uh, it's awesome. Well, maybe someday we can go eat some. See how, yeah. that, see how that works out for us. I'd love to. Um, all right. So. Hey, real quick, before we, we move on, I just want, for our first time listeners, I want to jump in and say, okay, so. What is the Searzol? Why do we want it? Et cetera. I love the idea that we might have a first-time listener. I feel you know, like we had like the, we had like, a certain peak and then, we just, yeah, and then we just lose them all. So Somebody wandered in here. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, so what is this? Uh, so a Searzol, uh, it's a good point. Uh, uh, a good point, Jill. Thanks so much. The um, Searzol is an attachment that fits on a torch. So for years, right, if you're doing low-temperature sous vide cooking, uh, especially at home, the way I used to – honestly, the way I used to finish uh, a steak or anything, fish, uh, poultry, anything that I would do sous vide, deep fry. The only way, deep fry. Deep fry. Deep fry. Right? And that's crispy and delicious. Love a deep fryer. Uh, problem is, not everyone has a commercial deep fryer in their house. I mean, I guess because of like what I said before a couple episodes ago about insurance reasons and whatnot. Some people don't like the idea of uh, frying uh, things, finished frying things for sous vide. They're wrong. It's delicious. But, you know, whatever. Um, and most people don't have power output enough to heat up a pan sufficiently. Uh, so really charcoal grill is a good option, but you know, a lot of people can't do a charcoal grill right away or they don't have one or they're in an apartment or something like this. So a lot of people turn to the blowtorch. The problem with the blowtorch is uh, it creates uh, what we call a torch taste on the meat, which is a very, very characteristic torchy fuel taste. That uh, you know, our friend Ariel at UC Davis did some uh, work uh, for us. Thank, thank you know, thank you. Uh, where she showed that, in fact, it's not the fuel itself that's causing it, but the intense heat of the flame is creating combustion uh, flavors on the meat itself. So we have this item called the Searzol, which plugs onto a torch. We recommend the Burnsomatic TS eight thousand TS eight thousand because it's twelve thousand BTUs. It plugs on this thing and it turns it into a mini handheld uh, like IR broiler, basically. What do you think? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah? Do I know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now for some questions. Rory, Rory Mears writes in about juice. Hey to the Cooking Issues team. My wife just bought a juicer. Not the auger type, but the type with the fine spinning blade. My question is how can I preserve the juice for longer than a few hours? I've tried searching the Google, but I get a lot of mumbo-jumbo about how you shouldn't try to preserve it because of its magical life-giving nutritional properties are so fleeting. However, I only drink the juice because it tastes good. Is that not reason enough? So what are my options to get it to last, say, one week? I have ascorbic acid on hand, although I have no idea what sort of percentages to use it in. And I also have a sous vide and no qualms about heating the fruit juice, uh, heating the fruit prior to juicing or, in fact, the resulting juice. I'm keen to make bulk uh, lots of tasty fruit, apple, orange, and or veggie juice, whatever is cheap at the market on the weekend to last the week. Love the show as always. Keep it up. Regards, Rory Merns. Okay. Uh, oh, and then uh, P.S. I'm going to read the P.S. before I answer the question because I love it. P.S. on these nuts because we happen to be listening to the episode with the rant about Virginia peanuts while driving through Virginia on our US road trip holiday I want to take a US road trip holiday with my kids but my kids would never be into it like I want to do all that crap but maybe in a year 
Maybe in a year. Did you guys do that when you were kids? Take the road trip around the country? Yeah, I've done it recently, but not as a kid. Not as a kid? So, oh, I'll, I'll get into it later if I have time. Like, all I'm saying is, is that I used to do it, and I appreciate that I did it now, but it's boring as hell to sit in the back of the car and watch a bunch of stuff go by. So, like, when we drive with the kids, the kids, like, they have their faces buried in iPhones and iPads, and, like, my wife and I are like, what the hell, look around at this scenery! Look at this scenery, look! And then, like, they, they don't really care, and then, like, I remember back, I'm like, yo, Jen, that's my wife, I was like, yo... Uh, Jen, I mean, I remember not giving a crap when I was a kid, right? But you guys don't have this experience to share with me because you didn't do that. Nope. No. Maybe Joe, did you do that stuff? I think he's away. Um, you know, not really like cross-country road trips, but, you know, we drove a couple hours here and there. And were you bored as crap in the back? Oh, it depends. I also get car sick, so that's kind of my main memory, feeling feeling nauseous. Mm, sweet, sweet, yeah, sweet. Great times. Driving and puking. That was that great Southern rock band. Remember that? Driving and puking? Yeah. Or was that... it Driving and Crying? I think it was Driving and Crying. Yeah. Should have been Driving and Puking. Good band. Uh, okay. We happen to be listening to the episode with the rant about Virginia Peanuts while driving through Virginia on our U.S. road trip holiday. My wife said, yeah, right. How good can the Peanuts really be? I don't know that your wife speaks that way, but that's just my voice when I imitate people. And exa- it's exactly what my uh, reaction was. Within 10 minutes of that, we stopped at some tired-looking roadside shop and picked up a can of the goods. Wow. We were both blown away. They were so insanely good and just as you described, with an unfamiliar but satisfying snap to them. Virginia Peanuts. These nuts. Okay, now back to your question. So, um, just one note on juices. You mentioned orange, and obviously orange, you're going to juice it in a different way. Uh, Be careful when you are juicing oranges because um, some oranges, specifically some navels, some – well, it's not an orange, but some tangerines, uh, the juice will bitter over time. So – uh, you just you know just test a couple and it's it's variety dependent you you know uh, you, you just test it and if after a couple of hours it hasn't gone bitter you're probably uh, you're probably okay but it's just something to note on uh, some citrus fruits is some will uh, undergo post um, post juice bittering uh, some tangerines uh, I don't know whether clementines do I think some clementines do a lot of navels do anyway just something to be aware of. Um, Ascorbic acid is going to be your lifesaver on uh, a lot of these things. I wouldn't do uh, a pre. I wouldn't do a pre uh, juicing uh, heat step on it because I don't. You know, you're not going to get uh, mold growth that quickly on your juice in the fridge or in the freezer as long as it's not moldy to begin with. You wash. You, you know, you wash it thoroughly. If you want to do a sanitized step, if you have a non-flavor, you know, like one of those fruit sandy fruit. What are those things called? You ever seen those things? Those fruit sandy. I've never used them. I've never seen them. Uh, they have them. They're like solutions you can dip like salad and stuff into if you're pregnant, and then it doesn't like. But I, I, I've never used it. Some people even use like a weak chlorine, dip it in, and then let it air out. I've never done it. Huh. I never done it. Anyways, but you can do it uh, and 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 juice it. Uh, then uh, I usually way overdose on ascorbic acid, like way overdose on ascorbic acid like to the tune of about a teaspoon per liter right would you say it's about what we do pipes yeah it's a lot it doesn't add too much flavor it doesn't add too much flavor but it you know it does juice you up on vitamin c so you can you know pee yellow and maybe live forever although linus pauling did not live forever linus pauling was the famous two-time nobel laureate scientist who well the second one he won was a peace prize but he thought you could uh greatly increase uh longevity and reduce uh disease by just mega dosing on vitamin c you know what happened to him he peed out a bunch of vitamin C and then died? Uh, that's pretty accurate. Although he did live to a ripe old age and was, you know, one of the smartest scientists of the 20th century. Anyway, uh, so there you go, last point. Uh, 
So anyways, so I usually add a, uh, about a teaspoon per liter and stir it in. And uh, if you want to keep it for a long time, I would say cold, vac bag it, and then freeze it. When you, when you do it, the best way to freeze it is to uh, vac bag the juice and then lay it on a sheet tray and freeze it flat in a sheet. Uh, and that way they stack very well in your freezer. And also when it comes time to thaw them, you're only thawing through, you know, like, I don't know, like, Three-eighths of an inch to uh, – let you know, three-eighths of an inch roughly is what we usually do them at. Three-eighths of an inch of stuff you have to thaw out in, uh, in uh, running water in order to get the juice usable again. So that's what I would recommend. And juice lasts a good uh, week uh, in, the, in the fridge. Depends on the juice too. I mean like grapefruit juice, eh. What do you think? Weak piper? Nah. Orange juice, a couple days. Couple grapefruit. Days. Freeze it. Freeze it. Yeah, freeze it. Flat. In vax. Yeah. You're good. Apple juice would last a good week. Oh, yeah. It's not, I don't think you're going to get mold. Piper would add uh, – what would you add to as a preservative if you really want to keep that sucker? Uh, sodium benzoate, potassium sorbate. It's small amounts. Super micro – like uh, 100th. Yeah, but you only need I a wait. small bit because you're really only preventing the slightest – look, you're not trying to keep this sucker uh, you know, yeast-proof in a shelf-stable application over like a zillion years. You're talking about keeping this sucker in the fridge for a week. So yeah. the amount of stabilization you, you, know, you need is minimal. I wouldn't – I mean if you're doing it for a week, I wouldn't put anything in. But okay. if you were going to have it on the shelf, I mean you want to prevent against microbial growth. And, uh, yeah, but you remember, there's also uh, they're not carbonating it. So, like when you're doing benzoate in a soda application, which is what Piper's done most of the research on, you know, the, the carbon dioxide is also a, a huge inhibitor, right? But anyway, and whatever. so is actually the the uh, ascorbic acid is a huge inhibitor too. It's really going to protect. It. Yeah, but it doesn't last. But it'll last a week. Yeah, ascorbic acid uh, doesn't last over time. It gets it gets used uh, and then it's it's over. But uh, I also agree that uh, I think you know you're right on point. I only drink the juice because it tastes good. That is reason enough. I don't believe in any magical life giving nutritional properties. Although I was teaching a bunch of uh, kids at Dax's uh, third grade class, and this one kid he asked me, he's like, "Do they make any machines that uh, use juice as a fuel?" I was like, "You are a machine that uses juice as a fuel, my friend." Third graders are awesome. Anyway. I was explaining steam engines. I love it when they learn about food. Yeah. Young. Yeah, young. Juice. Okay. Uh, next. Who was that? Was that an okay answer, Stas? Yeah. yeah. You're just like, I really, I, just, I don't care. I don't care. Matt from Chicago writes in, also about nuts. Not of not not these, but just some nuts. Uh, hello, Dave, and all the people who can, unlike Dave, occasionally be absent without thereby causing the whole show to skip a week. Ouch. Wow. Oh, Stas, have you ever missed one? Have we? Have you ever missed one? No. Mm-mm. I think I feel like I've done it once without you. Mm-mm. I think I don't know. We'll have to look it up. Okay. You mentioned on this week's episode a desire for a nut question every week. You are probably being facetious, but nevertheless, I'm here to do my part. Now I like nut questions, right, Pipes? Yeah. And we got another one after this too. Awesome. Two more nut questions if we get to them. Awesome. Anyway, I seem to remember in one of your early episodes a brief reference to a book which covered methods for making not merely actual tofu but very tofu-like products uh, from things other than soy such as nuts. Speaking to someone who is allergic to soy and all emanations thereof but nevertheless interested in experimenting with tofu-esque ingredients in the kitchen, I've searched through the archives. It's been unable to identify which episode this was, let alone which book, so I'll just come out and ask. Um, 
What information sources would you recommend for someone in my situation? Am I merely hallucinating this discussion from the show's past? Is there any consumer intelligent home cook oriented literature which provide a useful guide to the production of fofu? I like fofu as a term. Uh, Matt from Chicago-ish. P.S. I feel sorry for whatever poor, deluded, misguided persons wanted to remove your pro gear from your old apartment kitchen. I, for one, would happily pay a premium for such a kitchen. Stas is like, you preach, you need to convert it over here. Okay. So the uh, – so here, here's the thing, Matt. Uh, I did talk about that, and my thought was that it's in modernist cuisine, in the, you know, the massive tome that is modernist cuisine. Here is the problem. Uh, as I spoke last week uh, – we, I moved apartments, and all of my books are still in boxes, so I didn't get a chance to uh, to go to the book and search it. But my recollection is that Modernist Cuisine has a section not merely on reforming tofu tofu with transglutaminase, but also on making alternative tofus from other legumes and other things like that. Now, it's extremely obvious that you can get tofu-like textures uh, from almost anything you want, any nut milk you want, by setting it with the appropriate agents. Um, but I assume that's not what you're talking about. I assume you're talking about making an actual tofu-like product that uses a coagulation as, a, as the technique. Now, I myself have uh, experimented with uh, peanuts, and the result was delicious, but the texture was crap. It was worthless, useless. Like I, w- I tried it only one time. It also clogged. It wouldn't coagulate hard enough, so it clogged my draining, uh, my, you know, my draining towels. Um, so, and also my Nguyen tofu book also packs. All my tofu references are packed. Actually, I found shirt leaf, but he doesn't believe in any of that stuff anyway. Um, so uh, next week, hopefully, I have the the books unpacked and I can uh, address it again with the tofu. But uh, my guess is is that if you took a protein like something like uh, peanuts and tried to make a peanut food and you added transglutaminase, when I was doing my experiments was well before I had started working with transglutaminase. This is like two thousand. This is like two thousand. You know, when I was doing this stuff, and it's like you know twelve, thirteen years ago or something. So uh, I need to re- revisit it maybe with transglutaminase. I'm sure you could get peanuts to set harder with if you use TG. What do you think, Pipes? Yeah. <clears throat> I've got milk to set with it in the centrifuge. I'm assuming – I don't know, Matt, whether you have a centrifuge or not, but we'll <laughs> – Oh, <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Piper's like, just put it in your centrifuge. What are you, jerk? What are you? Man. Piper. Piper. Okay. Uh, take a break. Really? Mm-hmm. All right. We'll come back from the break with more cooking issues. so far? Support the network and become a member. 
Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Hell yes! Cooking Issues! Love that song. Love that song. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef. Love that stuff. You know what? The people, you don't know this guy yet. Maybe you've heard Nastasha speak about him, but Phil Bravo... A uh, friend of ours, kind of a friend of the show, not really a friend of the show, friend friend of Nastasha's, uh, the person that enemy uh, of the show that Nastasha, you know, currently an enemy of the show, uh, Nastasha and Piper uh, fed Drew some artichokes too to mess with his insides. Um, the he has possibly one of the great radio voices of all times, and he was supposed to come in to the um, show today and read the questions for Thanksgiving. His voice, when he wants it to be, is a dead ringer for uh, Thurl Ravencroft, who you might know as the voice of Tony the Tiger. In fact, yesterday, Phil did a There Great, which was... Amazing. Uh, I almost fell over. <laughs> he, and uh, I've heard that he does, uh, you know, uh, like a life-changing uh, Mr. Grinch uh, rendition. By the way, I don't want anyone calling in and saying that the Grinch is, uh, is Boris Karloff. Look, the voice of the Grinch is Boris Karloff, right? right? But Thurl Ravencroft is the song. Right, and that's why it sounds different. That's why the song sounds different from the voice. Well, the song is in second person, and the Grinch is typically in first person. Whoa, with the analysis <laughs> correct from creative writing major Piper Christensen. <laughs> anyway, so like, I can't wait for uh, the extremely short Christmas season this year, so that I can hear Phil Bravo do his rendition of "You're a Foul One, Mr. Grinch," uh, but. Uh, I would. L- the reason I brought that up is because I would love to hear Phil's rendition of Hearst Ranch, Ranch Grass yeah. Red Beef. Yeah. The authentic taste of the American West, right? Yeah. Isn't that what it is? Isn't it- I believe it's the authentic taste of the American West. Is that true? As authentic as it gets. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Oh, speaking of which, uh, another one of our uh, sponsors, the uh, uh, I have a, a, from Underground Meats. I have a, something in. This is from uh, Brandon Hopkins in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, all. Thanks for the salami recommendations a few weeks ago. I ordered the Tuscan salami super sata. I would call it, you know what? I'm from here, so I'll call it super sata. Whoa, 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 <laughs> Right? But how do you pronounce it, Stas? How's the actual Italian thing? Super sata. No. Super sata. Oh, super sata. All right. Uh, uh, Finocchiona, right? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Fennel sausages, uh, salami. And the Spanish chorizo from Underground Meats. Underground Meats. Underground Meats. Uh, everyone that tried them thought they were delicious. The Spanish chorizo was particularly tasty, which I served with manchego and quince paste on some toasted baguettes. You were all right, Piper, until he busted out the baguettes. You were all good until he busted out the... You like membrillo? love membrillo. Yeah? Nice. Why don't you point the mic towards your face when you talk? Wee. It's because he's shoving his face with food. That's all right. Don't worry about it. Anyway. Uh, I like membrillo as well. Uh, quince paste on some toasted baguettes. All the sausages were far superior to anything I have had in the store. I thought you'd be happy to know how awesome the show's sponsor is. Not only was all their sausage delicious, but their delivery was very fast. I would recommend any sausage fans give Underground Meats a try. Thanks for the suggestion, Brandon Hawkins. That's good. Uh, that's good testimonial, right? Yeah. 
good people good people there anyway uh, and while we're on the subject of meats Lucas friend of the show writes in and friend of Mofad came to the Mofad party uh, he's going to give us the deer meat he also had uh, a comment on the uh, on the breastfeeding we have two comments on the breastfeeding uh, thing and surprisingly most people look before we get into this like I'm not saying that someone should like shove their shove the the, the the stuff in your face necessarily. I'm just saying, you know, don't don't be hating. Don't be hating, right? That's my point. No? No. All right, whatever. <laughs> All right. So Lucas wants to give us some of his deer meat, which we desperately want. We're gonna like fifty four Eldridge is our lab, by the way, on Elder Street between Canal and uh and, Hester. and Hester. Like we're not available though until after Thanksgiving. So we'll have to get the deer meat some point after Thanksgiving. I already but. told him. But he writes, uh, for the record, I think women should be able to breastfeed however they want, albeit the usage of the scarf should be a, is a matter of good taste rather than of policy, right? I think that's the point. It's not making a policy, but it is, I guess, good taste, right? I think we can agree I on saw that. a lady in a business meeting, though, breast, bare breastfeeding. Okay. Are you observing this? At Roberta's, yes. So then Lucas adds, however, as you sit in the center of hipsteropolis, which is a good word, uh, I don't think you can demand uh, too much good taste. That Whoa! Is, that is true. Wow. Whoa. And uh, while we're on it, uh, we had another comment in uh, on that. Might as well go to that. Dr. Bob writes in, Hi, Anastasia. For some of us, the female body is the pinnacle of creation and should be treated with the utmost respect. When I examine a breast in an emergency uh, department exam room, it's done only with a female staffer in attendance. When it's not being examined, the breast is kept uh, respectfully tucked away in the exam gown, even though the patient is in a private room. I realize cultural norms, norms vary around the world, but in a New York restaurant, with a wide variety of public in attendance, I agree that the respectful thing, particularly for the woman in question, is to keep the breast covered. The awe and mystery of the female form is worthy of preservation, Dr. Bob. Thanks, Dr. Bob. <laughs> well, that's the first time. <laughs> I love the way you said that, Stas. Thank you, Bob. It's awkward. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you're, you're the one that brought it up. You can't you can't bring something like that up and then. No, I know. I appreciate it. It's still awkward. All right. Awkward. <laughs> right. That's like uh, same. Alex from Santa Barbara writes in. Hello, Dave and Nastasha, and I guess Piper. Even though you know Alex didn't include you. Nobody knew. It's implied. Be Impl- the implied Piper is that that's uh, that's the next thing. The implied Piper. I will skip the friar talks. We will talk about friars and ask about Thanksgiving. I've been working on a pecan pie. Pecan or pecan? What do you get? Pecan. Are you a pecan or a pecan? Pecan. Pecan? A pecan. But I think everyone down there goes pecan, right? Pecan? Yeah. Mm. What about Baltimore? You're on the dividing line between the north and the south. What do you say? I say pecan. Yeah? Mm. Mm. But pecan maybe... sounds like toucan. Ooh, toucan Sam. Yeah. You know, um, you know what really ticks me off? They have a new Fruit Loops thing that has this like weird center goop in it. I haven't tried it. My kids have been pestering me, but it hasn't gone on sale yet. So I have. You know, we're talking about Fruit Loops, is what we're talking about, Piper. I, I don't eat cereal. I come from Vermont. So the uh, like the, they have this new Fruit Loops, and the, the old advertisement for Fruit Loops was "Follow your nose, it always knows." And like the Toucan Sam goes around, uh, but this new one, they're using freaking metal detectors to find the Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam is there with his Toucan minions and a freaking metal detector. Why do you need a metal detector to find Fruit Loops? Follow your nose, Sam. It always knows. Gosh. What's with the fruit goop in the sun? I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know, man. metallic? They're finding the treasure chest. I don't know what the hell's going on with it. First of all, it's a fruit loop, not a fruit pillow. And second of all, the freaking toucan with his giant nose and all the colored stripes is supposed to be able to smell any dang fruit loop product from a mile away. And the fact that maybe he's so old, his nose is shot, he has to use a metal detector to find it. Get your advertising straight. 
That irritated the heck out of me. And then, even worse, my kids saw that and then they still wanted it because they didn't realize what a slap in the face it was to two cans everywhere that they had to use uh, uh, some sort of electronic gimmickry to find the Fruit Loops. Jerks. Okay. Uh, I will skip the fire talking uh, back to Alex. And that's about Thanksgiving. I've been working on a pecan pie inspired uh, dessert for Thanksgiving, kind of like a peanut butter cup but with pecans. Uh, the flavors are great once sugar, oil, and molasses are added, but the texture is off. I can't get the crumbly, moist, dense texture that the mad scientists at uh, Reese's pull off. Any ideas? Listen, uh, Alex from Santa Barbara. So the, the, the trick with – when you're trying to imitate somebody else's texture, the best thing to do is to figure out kind of how they, how they make it, Right. Now, I know I've mentioned on the, uh, on the show before that one of the key notes in a real Reese's peanut butter cup is, um, is rancidity, is you know oxidative rancidity of the uh, peanut butter. And uh, I believe I mentioned – I know I mentioned at some point, I don't know how, how long ago, that I spoke to someone from a company that does uh, oxygen scavenging packaging that prevents rancidity uh, in packaged goods. And they did a test run of Reese's peanut butter cups with the, uh, with the oxygen scavengers in them and nobody liked them because they missed the taste of rancidity. Right. So anyway, so you might want to let the pecans go rancid before you make it if you really want it. If you really want to hit that Reese's note right on the button. But what I recommend you do is uh, go look up a copycat recipe for uh, Reese's. Now, uh, uh, Nastasha looked up. There's a well-known uh, copycat recipe uh, dude named Todd Wilbur. He has YouTube videos, I think, and he has a show and he has a couple books on copycat recipes. He tackled um, Reese's and. Um, and what he uh, uses, his trick supposedly is to use reduced fat peanut butter uh, and powdered sugar. So he, he, like, he's using fundamentally reduced fat peanut butter and powdered sugar. Now luckily for you, the pecans that you get in general uh, have uh, – my guess is from having ground a lot of pecan butter over the years. Remember Stas? We used to have to grind pecan butter constantly. Stas has got that, that thank Christ that part of my life is over smile on her face, right? Yeah. yeah, we hated that. I hated doing that. We had to do it all the time. We did. We used to just do pecans constantly, pecan oil, pecan butter, pecan soups, all in the centrifuges, pecans, pecans, pecans. Now, Stas is going to be reliving that nightmare with hickory nuts. When are we going to get those things in? Super soon. Okay. So they uh, – and, and we're going to test butternuts too. But you I don't know whether – the guy from Home Depot? We found a guy in Home Depot. Literally, we're in the plant section. Nastasha is in the plant section because like, I'm I'm going to go get some bulbs for my house. I'm like, what the – and then she's there and, she, and she's like – Come here, come here. And like this guy is over in the corner talking about, I got all these hickory nuts in, in, my, in my yard and uh, I hear that some people on the internet, they like these things. So I collected them and I'm thinking I'm selling them, but I don't really know how. And so I was like, we can buy them. We can buy all of the hickory nuts. Right? Isn't that what you said to him? Hyperductive, yeah. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't talk. But, but, but you forced him to. But it was you, you, you both overheard him, heard him, I guess. <clears throat> yeah. That's when we were picking up our freeze dryer from Ideas and Food. Ideas and food. We have a freeze dryer. We haven't had a chance to fire it up yet. I've been working on the, uh, been working on the Sears all, uh, so I haven't had a chance to fire up the uh, freeze dryer. After Thanksgiving, we'll fire up the freeze dryer and give you guys reports. Anyways. Hey, Dave, i got to jump in here for a second. So a listener just sent in to info at heritageradionetwork.org a picture of Krusty O's from The Simpsons that comes with a free jagged metal Krusty O inside and saying that maybe Toucan Sam is looking for Krusty O's. 
Maybe. I mean, that's why he because he can't. He needs the metal. He needs the the metal detector to find the jaggedy metal one. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And I was just impressed at the speed at which that came in. I guess it's live radio, right? I wow. guess. Yeah, we're live. We're live. We're live. When I say coming to you live, I'm not messing around. No way. No, we're we're actually here, real human beings coming to you live. Um, Okay, so his secret is uh, is to use the reduced fat peanut butter. My guess from grinding a lot of pecans over the years is that because uh, we would typically to get a good oil uh, yield out of the pecans, we would add some oil back to it. Remember that, Stas? Because yeah. they would um, they're not as dry as almonds, but they're more dry than probably peanuts. Definitely peanut butter that has oil added to it. So if you grind uh, straight pecans, or I guess you're, maybe you're using pecan butter. And uh, then you got to get your uh, molasses and whatever else you do to the texture of a powdered sugar. I mean, that's going to be the issue. They don't make a. Uh, how would you do that? Just use brown sugar and powder it, right? So you don't have the extra moisture content. Just powderize brown sugar in a, in a Roboku with uh, some other dry stuff. Freeze and powder it. Like, how are you going to powder brown sugar? Get, oh, get the get the free running get the free running brown. Mortar and pestle it. What's going to no? It's going to gum up. Starch. Get the free running brown, maybe. Oh, demerara. Yeah, and then powderize and then, it in, yeah. in a blender, and then uh, maybe add some cornstarch to it because that cornstarch that's in the powdered sugar might be helping out a little bit. Mm-hmm. You, you don't know what the ratio of cornstarch in, in uh, powdered sugar is, do you? No, it's not huge though. No, it's like a couple percent, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the cornstarch is probably helping with the texture a little bit, right? Because it's you know making giving it that pasty, la la la, right? And then uh, powderize the uh, brown sugar substitute, uh, and then just make sure the fat content of your pecans aren't too high and that should be getting the texture you want and if you want to check out uh, Todd Wilbur's um, uh, Todd Wilbur's whatever his website but it looks like you're going to reduce the oil and uh, yeah, what do you think Give, tell That's me whether it works I'm, I'm interested to hear the result because until I found hickory nuts my feeling was pecans were God's nut but now I think hickory nuts are God's nut <laughs> right God's nut uh, okay uh, Philippe Lament writes in about Possibly, possibly poisoned bread. Uh, hello, Dave, Nastasha, Jack, and Joe, and, and Piper. Wah, wah. Uh, this is Philippe Lament writing in. Thanks for the advice on the soft serve machine. I recently went on vacation and ate a, at a spectacular restaurant called A Mass in Copenhagen. I've never been. I've never been. I was in Copenhagen for like 13 minutes, and I took a train to uh, to Sweden. Got the hell out. I've never been to any of those restaurants. Right? A Mass is in Copenhagen. Yeah, yeah, it's in Copenhagen. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, there we were served a bread made with one-third fermented cooked potato. We were told uh, – I like the word potato. Potato. Uh, we were told uh, that the potatoes were cooked, mashed, and put in cryovac bags and fermented in a warm room. The bread was amazing, but wouldn't this anaerobic and warm environment create a poison? What's up? Thank you. Well, yes, it, it most likely could. So this is very similar to um, – uh, salt rising bread, uh, sometimes made with a potato starter. There's a lot of anaerobic fermentation of uh, potatoes in um, in uh, Andean cooking, where you know where the potato comes from. Uh, some of the, their freeze dried chuño potatoes are kept in water and fermented. And there's also something called a tokash or togash, which is like you literally you bury the potatoes in water for you know I don't know like months, and then you dig it up. And then it, well, I think they say that they use running water, so it, it takes the bacteria away. But you and I both know that that's not the case. So, uh, so yeah. So, what's going to grow in there? So, the two main uh, things that you're going to get growing, and in fact, salt rising bread, the actual rising is not done by a yeast. It's done by uh, your good buddy Clostridium perfringens, and uh, th- that is not good. You do not want to get a, a perfringens infection, especially if you're like you know a soldier in battle, because that causes gas gangrene, which is 
bad bet. Uh, and it also creates um, uh, an enterotoxin, which uh, you know can you know get you sick. Uh, so all in all, bad. The uh, but the good news is is that when you cook bread, you're cooking it up to uh, the boiling point of water, typically to 12 or higher, right? Because it's getting at least at least to 180 Fahrenheit, usually up higher, up closer to the boiling point, and uh, well before that happens, the uh, toxins from the, the bacteria themselves are. Uh, Killed. The spores can't germinate because the moisture activity of the bread is not high enough when it's done, and the because uh, you might not be killing the spores. Remember, because that takes a much higher temperature than that for a long period of time, because uh, Clostridium perfringens is a spore-forming bacteria. But the, the toxins are neutralized, the vegetative cells are killed, and the spores cannot germinate uh, in the environment of the cooked bread. So, uh, salt risen, salt rising bread, safe. Uh, also interesting, I read some papers on the line on the internets that say that uh, well the other the other problem and this you can get this from a poorly stored baked potato botulism right botulism can grow and there's been cases of poorly stored uh, you know people eating baked potatoes uh, that have botulism and can cause problems. So uh, the good news is that if you're specifically growing Clostridium, Clostridium perfringens will uh, outcompete the botulism, and there's been studies showing that. Botulism, Clostridium, uh, the, the botulism, uh, Clostridium will not grow in the presence of a thriving uh, perfringens uh, colony. So that will take care of that. And the other good news is, let's say you should grow a, a boatload of botulism. The uh, toxin, the botulin, uh, botulism toxin, is also heat labile and will be destroyed by the cooking. So in general, the uh, you know, the, it seems that you're not gonna die from uh, eating um, the properly made. Uh, Stuff and my experience from making salt rising bread and from having um, Clostridium uh, fermented um, uh, what was it cassava in uh, in Senegal was that um, it has a very characteristic smell to it and so you kind of know whether or not it's got the right bacterial mix in there when you're when you're eating it uh, when you're making it rather and so hopefully that stuff should guarantee that you're uh, not going to die and apparently you did not because you wrote us a question right. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah? Solved. Good. It's a good, good. But, you know, again, you know, with all of the BS, uh, you know, I am not a, I am not a food safety, blah, blah, blah. Like, don't, don't do this at home, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Um, we had a question in from uh, Joe Blow, uh, Joe Blow 667, uh, Joe Blow 67. I can't believe there's only 67. He must have been an early Joe Blow. Because like that's like one of the first ones you're gonna check, right? I'm sure it's like up to like Joe Blow eight billion nine hundred twenty five thousand three hundred twenty six. Anyway, uh, any ideas for what you can do with peanut shells? Seems like a giant waste to eat the inner nut and throw the rest out. Well, you should just throw it on the floor. Yeah, like a, a Western bar. Yeah, yeah, right. Because like that, like totally adds to the uh, to the what's it called, right? Ambiance, yeah, ambiance, ambiance of the bar. Uh, no, but I, I, you know, take this seriously. Like they don't taste good, right? But I don't know. Okay, so you guys are like a little bit younger than I am. So when I say peanut, you say like name a person, name a person who's worked with peanuts. I'm gonna see if they it was only when I was a kid that they were teaching this stuff. People who feed elephants. No, George Washington Carver, man. When I was a kid, like when I was a kid, if you said if you said the word Carver. Or George Washington Carver, you peanut, peanut. You know what I mean. If you said peanuts, you're like George Washington Carver. Billion ways to use a peanut. 
you know what I mean? So George Washington Carver was like at least in the seventies we were like 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 taught constantly about there was this guy who his life's work was he's gonna figure out how to like squeeze every last piece of uh utility out of the freaking peanut. Turns out the guy also worked on um Sweet potatoes and a bunch of other stuff. He was the he was the head of the agricultural department at uh, the Tuskegee Institute for uh, many years, starting at the beginning of the 1900s all the way through. I think until I think until his death. Uh, and uh, he he did write a book that you can get online, uh, portions of it at least, called uh, "How to Grow the Peanut and 105 Ways of Preparing It for Human Consumption." And this is not about the hulls, but you should go check it check it out. He also he did a lot of patent work on like different ways to use peanuts, like making textiles out of peanuts, and that's where the hull comes in. Making like ointments out of peanuts, medicines out of peanuts, oils out of peanuts. Like like you know, he, like people say George Washington Carver invented peanut butter. That's a load of that's a load of crap. That is not the case. Although he might have done a lot to popularize peanut butter here in the U.S. of A. And again, the French hate peanut butter. Maybe it's because they have something against George Washington Carver. Weasels, but uh, uh, very interesting story. You should go read about George Washington Carver. Born, uh, born a slave, uh, became uh, you know uh, uh, an eminent um, scientist. Anyway, so the one that I like of his is, and then I'll answer your question. The one I, here's a weird ones. Number forty three in the peanut uses is peanut and cheese roast. Ready for this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want someone to make this. Like maybe Piper someday after the Kickstarter is done, you can make this. Right, one cup grated cheese. No freaking specification of what kind of cheese. Now this is like 1910 or whatever. So you know whatever. Maybe we'll have to figure out kind of what kind of cheese they would have had. Like I'd just lying around. Okay, you you will use cheddar and tell us. Okay, one cup breadcrumbs. You have to substitute gluten free breadcrumbs, right? So you got your one cup grated cheese, your one cup of breadcrumbs, your teaspoon of chopped onion, your one cup of finely ground peanuts, tablespoon butter. Juice of half of a lemon. This is a weird recipe, right? It's going off Sa- the deep end a little bit. Salt to taste. Cook the onion in the butter and a little water until it's tender. That's random right there. Like adding water to sweat the onion out before the butter. That's random stiff stuff right there. Random. Yeah. Uh, mix the other ingredients and moisten with water. More water. Using the water in which the onion has been cooked. Pour into a shallow baking dish and brown in the oven. That is a weird, weird recipe. Sounds like a dip. No, he says it's a roast. I mean... He says, he says it sets into a block. He doesn't say whether to serve it hot or serve it cold. I mean, that's a crazy recipe. He says cook onion in butter and water. So why add the butter then? And Why not just add the butter later? And then mix breadcrumbs, peanuts, lemon, and cheese together with the water and onion stuff and bake it. That's weird. Yeah. Strange, but I you know what you know George try Washington. Yeah, I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna give George Washington Carver a try. But to answer your question, uh, the only thing I can think of that's useful from a food perspective is you can make charcoal from peanuts. So uh, shells. So you take the peanut shells, pack them into uh, a chimney starter, light them up, and then to make charcoal, you have to cut off the entire oxygen supply. Once the stuff starts burning, you cut off the oxygen supply. Uh, they should go to charcoal. Most people, when they're actually using it for fuel, then compress them into briquettes, and you can look up online how to do this. Uh, I wonder whether there's a use for the really fine charcoal, maybe as a really quick way to start charcoal, right? I mean, it's going to burn really quickly or burn really hot, or maybe throw it on top of charcoal to give an extra burst of heat. I don't know. But it's the only thing I can think of from a food perspective. It's like a, a fuel for a smoker, maybe? Just not charcoal, but like regular shells. I don't know. I don't know what their smoke tastes like. 
I don't know, but that's a good point, Piper. I like the way you think. I like the way you think. They were, there's a lot of people who are considering using it in places that don't have a lot of wood and that you know can't afford other things. You know what I mean? Although it's an awful lot of peanuts to yeah. be cooking from the hulls. But anyway, so maybe someone will give it a, a try and test it out. All right. Uh, Tristan Catcher writes in, uh, making a Chev uh, sorbet cream cheese and Chev uh, and syrup, churning it as normal. It's freezing smooth uh, when it's fresh, but overnight it goes solid. How should I stabilize it? I don't think you're adding enough sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to increase the sugar level on it. Uh, what I would do if you don't want it to be sweet is to use a low sugar uh, sweetener like uh, glucose syrup, uh, which has a DE of like what? It's like... 40, I think it's like 43. 40, yeah, 40 something, like low DE, low DE glucose syrup, uh, which is going to have a very low sweetness level. There are even less sweet things out there, but they're going to give you the bodying effect you need and the softening effect you need. Uh, if it's an actual stabilization problem, I like LBG, locust bean gum, for that kind of an application. So you just cook the whole thing out with the add the LBG cold, disperse into uh, into uh, hopefully water or whatever, and then and then cook it cook it out above about eighty five. Bring it back down. If you add eggs, I guess you didn't. And then it's a sorbet. So anyway, so then and then uh, that that should stabilize it and prevent any stabilization problems you have from a texture. But solidity is almost always a uh, a sugar balance problem. Would you agree on that? Yeah. If you don't want to add more sugar. Another thing you can do, some people do, they add alcohol to soften it. I don't actually like to do that because the the um, it melts weirdly when you add a lot of alcohol to a sorbet. Like it's like holding together and then all of a sudden it's not holding together anymore. It doesn't have the same meltdown that you get from kind of the sugar inhibition melting. At least that's been my experience in life. What about you, Pipes? Do you feel the same way or no? Uh, I haven't had too many uh, alcohol. We have a color. Oh, so we have a color? Color, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. How's it going? It's J.D. Hey, what's going on? Right? What's up? Hey, I'm doing all right. Uh, I just have some questions in terms of um, I'm actually uh, helping the uh, May May Street Kitchen folks. They recently owned, opened their restaurant. Oh, yeah. How's it, how's it doing? I like those people. How's it going? Yeah, it's doing pretty well. I'm actually uh, trying to help them with some, uh, uh, a circulator issue they have in terms of uh, being able to do some 64-degree 60, C eggs in 60 minutes. Uh, and I was wondering... Uh, in terms of uh, capacity of being able to, say, run one circulator, and um, I'm wondering how many eggs you could run to be able to meet that 60-minute limit if we do the preheat. You're doing a 64? Yeah. Okay. I mean, the good news on 64 is it's a lot easier to hit 64 than it is to hit uh, 63, right? So the, the two okay. easy... The two like the easiest one is sixty two because you don't need to ever get the center up to sixty two. Sixty four you need to get it at sixty four, but if it goes a little bit over, like two tenths, three tenths, it's not not a big deal. Um, right. But wh- 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 why do you only have one hour to do it? Um, in terms of just being able to understand the uh, the turn time and and be able to prep for service, and that's typically what they're used to. So I guess. Um, the better question would be, you know, trying to maximize the amount of eggs for one circulator uh, in a certain duration. So yeah, I mean, I guess tr- that the, yeah. Go ahead. So I guess that's kind of basically I want to be able to maximize the amount of egg, throughput of eggs in a set amount of time. Right. So, so what I had noticed is that you know they were doing they were trying to do a sixty minute eggs, and they were doing. Um, and they were telling me that it was, t- it was taking a little bit longer than they expected. And basically what I determined is that 
they weren't preheating the water uh, higher than than. So what would happen is that they'd have to wait um, for 60 eggs. They had to wait 20 minutes for recovery to get back to 64. Yeah, and 64, you need to be at 64 to get a 64. So, I mean, a trick that, you know, uh, that a lot of people do is, uh, especially if you're doing something like a creme anglaise, it's really high temperature for a circulator, like, you know, 80, 82. Uh, they, they, they'll set it to 85, drop the stuff in, and within a couple of seconds, it, it drops down. So you can, like, over overheat the water. You have to figure out kind of, you have to do a lot of you have to do some some checking some math. I mean, it doesn't take that long to overcook the white on the inside, so it can be a little problematic. You know, ramping the d- temperature high enough to really get back fast enough. Another thing you okay. can do is uh, well, first of all, when you're cooking eggs to a specific temperature like 64, uh, it's again that's harder than 62, but easier than 63 in terms of difficulty, not in terms of texture. Um, you have to make sure that the eggs aren't piled uh, such that the the eggs in the very center aren't getting proper uh, water circulation around them uh, or it, right. it's just not going to be cooked right. So one of the things that's going to limit the amount of eggs that you can cook is how many layers you can fit where you get water circulation between all the layers of eggs. Like so that's critical, right? Uh, okay. To get water circulation between all the layers of eggs if you want them all to cook at the same rate. The second thing you can do, and this is – I've done this before – uh, is you um, just keep a pot of bo- boiling water near the eggs, and then you just add boiling water by the you know by the um, you know like you know panful until because that will level out right away, uh, and you uh-huh. can get a sense for kind of how long it takes you to get uh, back up, and you can bail water out, and then if you go over, you can throw a couple of ice cubes in, and you should be able to stabilize the temperature within. Like three four minutes, you know what I mean. If you have uh, boiling water, you should be able to get a fairly stable temperature within three four minutes. Now, as to how many I've ever done at once with one circulator, usually what yeah. I'll what I'll do is, I mean, I've I've done sixty twos in very non ideal circumstances where I've done like a hundred, you know, or more in one shot. It's not ideal, but with sixty two you can get away with it. With sixty four, I don't know if you can really get away with that. I mean, I would probably say maybe. Maybe see a flat is what thirty six in a flat. Yeah, is that right? No, twenty. What's in a flat? Six by six. Six by six. Thirty six. One, two, three flat. Yeah, you could probably do three flats. Okay. Probably, yeah. but you know the the um, the other thing you can really do, and it makes could make your life a lot easier, is to uh, just. You know, run a cycle and then chill them down. Run a cycle, chill them down, and then just retherm them all at service temps. Reser- you know, retherm them at like 50, 55, 50, 56, and then you can just keep them around. There's no need to cook them all at once. Is if you right. if you actually have the time, you can cook them beforehand and then therm them up for service. And they only need like thirty. 35, 40 minutes at 55 to re-therm enough for service and then they can hold at a temperature that low at like 55, 56, even up to 57 really. They can hold for uh, you know hours and hours and hours and hours. They're not going to change their texture at that temperature. You know what I mean? And okay. that, that might be yeah. a good solution for them. Okay. Um, so I had kind of a follow-up question because in terms of the circulation, I was thinking about building a uh, a custom basket to be able to get the circulation you need, you know, basically like wire stacks. And I was wondering, um, 
you know, how effective do you think that would be, as well as um, what do I need to keep in mind um, in terms of, you know, keeping it um, food safe and not, you know, if I wanted to get materials, you know, what would you suggest that would best suit that? Well, I mean, you're going to make it out of what? Out of, out of metal? Out of stainless? Yeah, I was thinking stainless. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I was going to maybe try to, you know, maybe throw some fire baskets in, something of that nature, and stack some, um, you know, wire racks in between somehow. Fire baskets rust like a demon. Uh, in, okay. in, in my in in my uh, experience, uh, they're not as stainless as you would like them to be. I think a lot of them right. are actually just chromed over. You know what I mean? And so like they, they tend to rust and even most uh, cooking grates that are supposedly stainless, like they rust out in the cirque over a long period of time. Uh, but you know, uh, you know, they might last uh, a while. If I was going to do full custom job, I would do I would do stainless or I mean I would do stainless. The other alternative would be uh, acrylic or polycarb because you're not cooking at that high a temperature and you're not using alcohol. I mean, if you're not if you're not a believer in polycarb because you're worried about um, things leaching out if someone cooks if someone cleans it with detergents and starts breaking down the polycarbonate, you could go with acrylic. Acrylic's easy because you can laser cut acrylic. So if you can build something that way, but it's going to be heavier and more fragile. I mean, stainless is kind of ideal, like wirework stainless. But then you have to find someone who could do the wirework stainless for you. You could make something with fryer baskets, but when people load eggs into fryer baskets, they tend to glom together in the middle, and then the ones in the middle are going to have problems. What no one's really built that would be super sweet is something that mimics a flat of eggs but it's just made out of like empty wire and then holds the eggs and then has a way to stack the next flat on top of it so that the, every egg is in its own little cage. That would be freaking genius. Like I would buy that. Like if you made that, I would buy that. In fact, I should make that if you don't make it. If you're not going to make it, I'll make that. I won't because I don't have time but I'm saying like I would buy that. Wouldn't you buy that, Piper? Yeah, we'll get some coat hangers and rubber bands. And oh, jeez. Oh, my God. No, but like the, but the, the thing is like, like uh, you want to fit it into you – know, like you don't want to be – Using a full size Lexan for that, you want to fit it in the half size uh, Lexan, right? right. Because it, you know, right. anytime you cook uh, enough eggs where you need a full size Lexan, your recovery time is going to be ridiculous. So I would build yeah. something to maximize the um, the tall half the half Lexans is what I would go for. Yeah, is is Teflon something that you can use or no? Teflon, Pfft. good luck. Yeah. Teflon is first of all extremely expensive. Uh, you know, it it's kind of flexible. It, it's impossible to join. Uh, so you have to do everything with uh, screw fasteners and like I've never machined Teflon, but I don't know how easy it is to machine. It's really okay. expensive, man. Really, okay. yeah. I, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't play the Teflon game. Okay, you know? and then in terms of uh, just a quick final one, um, in terms of watching circulation, I, I posted to you about putting glitter in the in the water, and you said that was a pain in the ass to clean. Is it doable? Yeah. Or do you have other suggestions to be able to watch circulation and make sure that it's working properly? I mean, like you could just throw one or two floaty craps into it and just watch them go around. You know what I mean? Like, because that yeah. al- that always happens anyway. In fact, like I'm always like, "What the hell fell in my in the in the in this bath?" And then you have to like kind of scoop it out, and you can get yeah. a good feeling for for what's going on. But literally, like one or two little thingamajigs in there is enough to see kind of how the flow works. You can dump. I mean, like Piper, what would you want to dump in if you were going to dump something that you had to recover later? It's got to be big enough so it's not going to get sucked into your circulator. Or small enough that it can get sucked through without a problem. I'll never forget the time that I uh, didn't cheesecloth my circulator and I did uh, like 
a, a, a through the wood chips in to do the wood chip circulator to get the the flavor oh, of the wood. Oh my goodness! Oh my god! It's such a nightmare! Oh, such a freaking Crazy. nightmare! But the oil was good. I mean, that's a good technique. Circulating uh, uh, charred uh, charred wood chips in oil for an oil poach. I mean, it's a good okay. technique. But uh, yeah. yeah, but it's uh, but it was a pain to clean out. Let me tell you. Right. Okay. Well, um, that answers all my questions. Thanks for everything, and keep up the good work. All right, thanks. Happy Thanksgiving. All right. We uh, actually we have to we have to go out now. But uh, Elliot Elliot Papenow wrote in uh, on the Twitter. Uh, Can you debunk some stock mythology? Because the New York Times just did something on uh, on turkey stock. I don't have time to go into all of it now because they're going to kick us off. Maybe we'll do some of it on the Twitter uh, later on. But turkey stock is. Is that the only Thanksgiving question we've had? Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, uh, should you cook? We'll, we'll just handle this one. Should you cook your stock uh, covered or uncovered? And I'm going to go ahead and say that uh, the only reason to cook a stock uncovered is so that you don't have the problem of it going to a rolling boil without you noticing it, right? Otherwise, you would want to keep it covered because that's going to keep the aromatics in more. Piper, agree or disagree? Agree. Yeah. So like once you get the thing set and you can ensure that you're not going to get a rolling boil in it, there's no dang point. Well, the other thing is like a lot of people when – when, when, t- when you – let's say you were at the French Culinary Institute, which you were, Piper, right? Mm-hmm. So when they taught you how to make stocks at the French Culinary Institute, what did they do that I hate? Well, uh, I mean they made an enormous amount at a time. Yeah, and they and and they the bones the bones and meat to water ratio was, in my opinion, way the hell off. Right? They they made a weak stock. I don't think I can come out on the radio and say that. No, no, I don't mean it in a bad way. They would then reduce it later. Yeah, they would always make a, a higher water volume and then uh, reduce it later. Yeah, I'm much more from the James Peterson school. Great. Do people still read that stuff? He's a great cookbook writer. From his school, which is, you know, don't overwater it to begin with to minimize the amount of reduction you have to do later. And that's the kind of the school of thought I'm in. So if you're starting with a high water content and you're doing a stock where you're cooking it for a long time, and I, I frankly, I don't think turkey stock needs to be cooked that long like you do like the old ones. I just don't. I think a lot of people spend way too much time cooking their poultry stocks. Um, you should really use a pressure cooker anyway. Uh, so they, I think they overwater it and then let it reduce some as it's cooking in the pot. But I think that's useless, unnecessary. Just add the amount of water that you want and then cover it and ensure it doesn't go to a rolling boil. And the reason you don't want a rolling boil is you don't want to emulsify the oils into it as, it, as it's going and cause it to get cloudier. Which doesn't make a damn bit of difference if you're going to make a gravy out of it, frankly. Right. Right? But they also let it rip overnight, too. So, so they – yeah, so they want – yeah, which you're not going to do at home. Yeah. Whatever. I, don't, I think you can cover it. That's my feeling. Cover it and then reduce it later if you want to. Yeah. Anyway. Happy Thanksgiving. Cooking your shoes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.